This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news in our world lead. A series of explosions just heard around the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv just moments ago. You're looking live at the skyline of Kyiv right now. We're told the blasts were heard about 20 minutes ago. Our teams on the ground are trying to find out exactly where and what and whom might have been hit. This latest attack coming as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky sends a message to the world and to the United States in an interview with CNN from a bunker in Kyiv. Zelensky telling CNN's Matthew Chance today that this war is about more than bombings and missile attacks. It's a battle for democracy and freedom. We're going to have Matthew's full interview in our next hour. Across Ukraine today, scenes of the Russian atrocities being inflicted on innocent Ukrainian civilians. Ukrainian officials say five people were killed and five others injured. When Russian military strikes hit the area around a massive TV tower in Kyiv, search and rescue teams are combing through the rubble in the center of a different city, Kharkiv, after Ukraine's interior minister says at least one cruise missile hit the city's Freedom Square. So far, at least 10 people are confirmed dead there, another 35 injured. This is in addition, of course, to the deadly strikes yesterday, which killed at least three children. Moments ago, Ukrainian leaders announced that Russian airstrikes have hit the Babin Yar Holocaust Memorial Site in Kyiv, built on Europe's largest mass grave of the Holocaust. CNN's Clarissa Ward starts off our coverage today from Kyiv. And Clarissa, what can you tell us about these latest explosions? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're definitely hearing a lot of explosions tonight, Jake. Uh, just in the last 20 minutes, half an hour or so, we heard three large explosions coming from the northeast, which is sort of in that direction. Then just as we were opening up the windows uh, here to do this live shot, we heard another explosion that sounded further away in the distance. And of course, there was the main explosion uh, that we heard earlier today, just before dark, and that was targeting the Kiev TV tower. We now know, as you mentioned already, that five people were killed in that. The TV tower itself does not appear to have been destroyed. But nonetheless, uh, the Ministry of Information was saying that the channels are not working anymore. They're working to get backup channels. Uh, and the images that we have been seeing coming from that, that attack are, are, are just harrowing. You can, you can see people who have clearly been killed in the strike, smoke billowing, and all of it taking place right next to, as you said, the Babin Yar Holocaust Memorial. This is a memorial park. There were some installations there and plans to develop it into something more. Uh, we've already heard from the uh, Bob and Yar Holocaust Memorial Site protectorates who really underlined the sort of grotesque irony of the fact that President Putin has sought to manipulate and distort history to make this illegal invasion look like some kind of a crusade against neo-Nazis. And, and the fact that he is actually, in the course of the early days of his bombing campaign, hit this site, uh, this memorial commemorating one of the worst massacres in, in the Second World War, obviously is uh, it, it's, it's dark and it's grim and, and it speaks to the historical distortions. People in Kiev tonight, though, Jake, are just, you know, hunkering down and fearing the worst. We heard earlier from the Russian defense ministry that they can expect more targeting here inside the, the city capital, particularly of SBU. Those are Ukrainian security services targets. Uh, and also anything, they, they use the expression relay nodes in Russian, by which we assume they meant communications towers. That's obviously the TV tower, but the question 
is whether we are in for more uh, bad news and explosions tonight, Jake. And Clarissa, we're seeing these new satellite images of a 40-mile Russian convoy of tanks, armored vehicles, artillery, all seemingly headed toward the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. Uh, Ukrainians must be terrified that a larger attack is looming. Ukrainians are definitely terrified. I don't know if you can hear this in the in the distance, Jake. This yeah, sounds to me actually like some kind of outgoing, some kind of outgoing fire, uh, small arms. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure where it's coming from or, or what it was provoked by. But these are the kinds of things that we do hear most evenings, although I will say it's definitely picked up significantly tonight. And you mentioned that convoy, and this is the hugely important piece of the puzzle, right? What is the plan for Kiev? That convoy of however many miles it is now, I, I forget, it's such an extraordinary 40 miles, I believe, at the last count, inching closer to the capital. And is the plan, therefore, as U.S. intelligence officials fear, to completely encircle the city, to cut it off, to stop food coming in, humanitarian aid coming in, and basically lay siege to Kiev while you continue to see this kind of aerial bombardment, missile strikes, uh, and then potentially, uh, would you be looking at a, a sort of ground invasion, Russian troops coming in to the capital? That is so hard to imagine, uh, given the sort of resistance, the defiance, the courage, and the hatred, frankly, that you see on the ground here from ordinary Ukrainian people to the Russian forces responsible for this assault. And yet there is undeniably a David and Goliath dynamic playing out here, whereby as hard as Ukrainian forces are fighting to defend their country, they are outmatched, they are outgunned, and the very real fear is that the worst is yet to come, Jake. Yeah. Clarissa Ward in Kiev, Ukraine, thank you so much. Please stay safe. Ukrainian search and rescue teams expect to find even more dead and more injured as they pick through the rubble in central Kharkiv after officials there say multiple Russian rockets hit a government building ITV News correspondent Dan Rivers saw the damage firsthand. This is Kharkiv's Freedom Square, but this morning Freedom was under attack once again. Missiles slamming into the main local government building. President Zelensky has called this open, undisguised terror. A week ago, the view from this window was onto a European square bustling with life. Now... It is a glimpse into the grim future which seems to await this country. The search for survivors and recovery of the dead took place amid the constant threat of secondary attacks. So far, at least 10 people are confirmed to have died and many more have been injured. There was a strong explosion from the square that blew off all the glass. Everyone who was near window was seriously hurt. I was okay. We were all heading downstairs to the basement when second missile came and hit the roof. We arrived four hours after the attack, which has shattered the very heart of this city. The aftermath still painfully fresh. All around reminders of the terrible human cost. The occupants of this car must have been driving past just as the missiles fell. Survival or death here was a matter of chance. But remarkably, young Ukrainians were already out, risking their lives to clear up. I'm sad. I don't know how we will, uh, how we will uh, rebuild it. 
after the war. The strike here this morning in Freedom Square represents a bleak new chapter in this war. Russia appears to be targeting the very symbols of the Ukrainian state, hoping to bring its people to their knees. But what we found here today is defiance. The rage at those responsible for all this is visceral. It's an awful, it's awful, it's awful war. We are crying every day, every night. We are crying every day. You should stop it, immediately stop it. But the Russians weren't finished yet. In the afternoon, another attack, hitting a building near a hospital. From another angle, you can see the extent of the damage to apartments in the street. Amid the sound of more rockets, we ventured into another of the city's hospitals. Inside, we found the basement is now a bomb shelter for children bewildered by how their lives have suddenly been upended. In the ward upstairs, just some of those injured so far in Kharkiv. After such a day of appalling bloodshed, you might expect the people here to be cowed. But if anything, their spirit appears galvanized against President Putin's aggression. There appears to be a distinct shift in the tactics by the Russians. They seem to now be forgetting this idea of running in with special forces into towns like Kharkiv. Instead, they appear to be targeting the infrastructure of the state in order to break the will of the people. But from what we've seen today, so far, that is failing. All right, ITV News correspondent Dan Rivers in Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you so much for that reporting. Stay safe. Joining us now to discuss, Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska. He's on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, Senator, thanks for joining us. You've raised concerns uh, that American intelligence is not getting to the Ukrainians who need it uh, in real time, fast enough. You want Ukrainians to get that information when it can make a difference. I guess one counter-argument to play devil's advocate is does that not increase uh, the risk of possibly revealing crucial sources, especially if, if Russians uh, infiltrate Ukrainian intelligence services. That's not what's happening here, Jake. This isn't about sources and methods, because absolutely we should be ironclad in protecting sources and methods. But it was some impressive reporting from, from Clarissa and from Dan there. But let's be honest about what we're seeing. We're, we're seeing the onset of a more systemic targeting of civilian populations. This is who Vladimir Putin is. Uh, this is a guy who poisoned political opponents as far back as 2004, who invaded Georgia without consequence in 2008, who stole Crimea in 2014, down civilian airliners without consequences again, meddled in our elections, poisoned Navalny in 2020. This guy doesn't have a moral limit on what he will do. And so when you show those images of the 40-mile convoy, the question Nebraskans ask me is, hey, isn't this guy on his way to kill a bunch more women and children? Isn't this guy on his way to kill a bunch more civilians? How can we just let that happen? Well, we do know that we've made the determination that we're not going to have boots on the ground in Ukraine, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing everything possible for those freedom fighters there to be able to destroy that convoy. Those Russian invaders are murderers, and they're on their way to kill civilians, and the Ukrainians want to stop them, we should make sure that they're armed to the teeth and that they have all the lethal, actionable, real-time intelligence they can possibly get. And right now, they don't have all that. We've seen these satellite images you were just referring to of this Russian military convoy stretching for more than 40 miles. It has reached the outskirts, outskirts of Kiev. Militarily, 
What do you think the U.S. should be doing or providing for Ukraine, given the fact that the decision has been made and there doesn't really seem to be much objection to it among uh, any uh, political leaders in the country, Democrat or Republican, that there will not be any American uh, uh, boots on the ground? Yeah, so first of all, all the RPGs that they can use, all the stingers that they can use, all the ammo that they can use, every grandma that wants an AK-47, all the supplies that they're coming up with at the civilian level for Molotov cocktails. But we know that the Ukrainians want more lethal, actionable, real-time intelligence. And right now, they're not getting that. The process is overly lawyered right now by the administration. There's caution that needs to be taken, to be sure. You started with sources and methods. I sit on the Intel Committee. We have heroes in the IC, and they've done unbelievable work the last three or four weeks. The fact that that we intentionally leaked, the U.S. government intentionally leaked um, all the pretextual bullshit, I'm sorry, all the nonsense lies that, that Putin was systemically laying out so he could claim that somehow Ukraine was the threat to him, which was always nonsense. His his pretextual uh, lies have all been debunked by the intelligence community. That's really important work. And yet, more should and can be done. And right now, the administration is too slow and they're too passive. It isn't good enough to tell somebody where a tank was 10 hours ago when the tank's now at the doorstep trying to do the kind of bombing we've seen in Kharkiv. If it's the lawyers holding it up, do you think that's because they're worried uh, about the implications of the United States providing real-time intelligence that could then result in the deaths of Russians? Is that the issue? Or perhaps are, they, are there legitimate concerns about the United States providing what ends up being false intel- intelligence? We remember that drone strike in Afghanistan where an innocent Afghan family was killed. Yeah, this this is not a time for for I'm not a, I'm a very conservative guy and I'm certainly hawkish about defending these freedom fighters, um, but I'm not a very partisan guy. So this is probably not the right time uh, for me to relitigate all the stupidity of April to August last year because it was a gang that couldn't shoot straight for months on end uh, and a lot of really stupid decisions were made. This isn't the time to relitigate that. But the bad intelligence there in a jihadi situation that was already chaotic is different. And I'm again I'm not getting anywhere near a classified line, but is different than the kinds of intelligence that are available to us uh, in the digital realm at a moment like this. And we ought to be giving all of the lethal lethal targeting, real-time information we can. And right now there's a policy decision that that seems to be misaligned with the reality of a Putin who's on his way to target more civilians. I think every journalist in America ought to be asking the president of the United States this. Have you directed your administration to provide lethal, real-time targeting intelligence to the Ukrainian military? And if not, why not? The administration should have to answer that question. They respond with lawyerly crap about, well, this agency isn't slowing things down, and we have a great process here, and there is an authorization to do X and Y, or, you know, we're sharing intelligence. That's fine. Mm. I want to know, are you sharing lethal targeting intelligence in real time so the Ukrainians can kill Russian invaders. Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, gave an interview to CNN's Matthew Chance earlier today. Uh, He once again called on the U.S. to help enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Take a listen. I have already turned to some foreign leaders with this request. I believe that leaders must support democratic states of the world who are keen to defend such principles. This powerful issue of closing the airspace helps us tremendously. This does not mean dragging NATO into this war. But you don't support a no-fly zone. Obviously, that would entail 
uh, putting U.S. pilots, whether Navy or Air Force, at risk. Uh, what do you tell Nebraskans when they say this convoy's headed there? How come our boys can't go up and girls can't go up there and, and, and bomb the Russian convoy? Yeah, so a bunch of important distinctions you do there. Let's say a, a bit of good news and then get into some of those distinctions. The first good news is the Russians don't have complete air superiority right now. The U Ukrainians have been heroic fighters everywhere, but that includes their air force. I think almost every analyst who was watching this thing unfold as 150,000 troops amassed, again, with a, with a green light from Chairman Xi to move troops back from 11 times those away in the Far East into Belarus, as all of that stuff was piling up on their border, I think almost everybody bet that Russians would have air superiority almost immediately. They didn't, and that's really good news. We should applaud the Ukrainian Air Force. But to the specific question you're asking, a no-fly zone isn't something you can simply declare. It's something that you have to go and enforce. And that would mean U.S. fighters would be coming into contact with Russian fighters over Ukrainian airspace right now. And the administration hasn't made any decision like that. I haven't made any call for anything like that because we have Ukrainians that are willing to fight. We need to have the will to arm them with, with the munitions but also with the intelligence. Senator Ben Sass, Republican in Nebraska, thank you so much for your time, sir. We really appreciate it. And CNN's full interview with Ukrainian and President Volodymyr Zelensky from his bunker in Kiev as Russian forces approach his city is coming up on the lead. Plus, a city on edge. We're live in a strategic Ukrainian port where the Russians are closing in by sea. And then in just a few hours, President Biden will deliver his very first State of the Union address as the world braces for Vladimir Putin's next move. Stay with us. And we're back with breaking news in our world lead. Ukraine's third largest city, Odessa, is on edge right now as Russian forces inch closer and closer. Russian troops have had control of Crimea and parts of the Donbass region, but now they're moving in on cities, other cities along the Black Sea. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is on the southern coast of Ukraine, where some Ukrainians are taking up arms against the Russians, preparing to fight back. Slowly, Moscow's tentacles are strangling Ukraine's Black Sea coast. These Russian troops helping themselves to the stores of the town of Kherson. Leading this man away, others too, according to a resident who spoke to CNN. And also showing here too... ...their callous disregard for civilian life. Leaving little left but to appeal to a higher power that any Russian rule might be benign. Head from Kherson west along the coast and the pressure builds. In Mykolaiv, where locals are braced for Russian armour, and especially here, 30 minutes north of Odessa. The town of Dachnir, hit with shelling. The next stop is this, Ukraine's third largest city, Odessa, the strategic port. Scarred still from a war for the last generation. In the hurriedly converted food halls, the youth know it is now their turn. This is like hipster paradise, yes, right? Yes, Basically. Paradise, yeah. yes. Now, two days ago, I with my friends organized a small chat yeah. in Telegram. It was at fir at, uh, firstly, it was five people on the hero, and after that, in two uh, days, it's transformed in a big, uh, the biggest humanitarian help uh, volunteer center in uh, Odessa region. Food, medicine, and history fuel them here. They stack sandbags outside the nearby opera house, fortified like it hasn't been since 1941. This split screen circulated by cell phone. Oh. 
this is Odessa Opera House today. Uh, I'm sorry, but when, when when I just saw it, I I cried. I, I, it's impossible because I was I was crying because like 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 a little girl. But this was in 1941. You yes. were fighting against the Nazis. Absolutely. Once again, we're fighting against Nazis. Okay. Some civilians have already taken up arms. Great nervousness about being filmed here, everywhere, really. Apart from here on the shore. For history, guys, he shouts. And then they tell any Russian ships where to stick it. But while it can feel like everyone is staying to fight, they are not. The trains are still filling. Grandmother, she says, when I ask her where they're going. Another generation's fight now. You can only hope theirs is shorter. Now, Jake, it is extraordinary to be in a city of this size. Well, I have to say we've heard occasional sirens, but not that frequent explosions. Yet it is so on edge. People, frankly, just occasionally just disappearing, not showing up to work. A real sense of... Something awful potentially being around the corner here. For many days, they've been warned of a possible Russian amphibious landing. You saw there, just 30 minutes' drive from here, Dachny being hit now. Concerns that might be a Russian probe towards Odessa and a city here, as you say, where history of this sort of thing, of putting up barricades, it chillingly echoes through people's bones here. They talk to their grandparents who talk about how it was in the 40s with the horrifying notion some sort of similar defense of Odessa might be at hand now, Jake. Nick Payton Walsh in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. President Biden is set to address this nation in a matter of hours. His most important audiences, however, might be in Kiev and Moscow. Let's talk about that next. In our politics lead today, a critical night for President Biden in his very first State of the Union address coming in just a few hours. I spoke with President Biden at the White House today, and he told the anchors who were there that he wants the American people to understand, quote, my determination to see to it that the European Union, NATO, and all of our allies are on the exact same exact page in terms of sanctions against Russia. The president went on to say that unity is, quote, the one thing that unity is, the one thing that gives us power to impose severe consequences on Putin. Tonight's speech, of course, is not just about messaging to the American people, but also to the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Zelensky told CNN today that he wants Biden to speak directly about the fight for democracy. Another figure who will likely be listening closely is Vladimir Putin in Russia. Let's talk about all of this. Uh, Casey, let me start with you. Um, This message of unity uh, when it comes to Europe and NATO fits nicely with his campaign theme. It sure does. I mean, this is ground that Joe Biden feels comfortable on. And I think you'll see that reflected in the speech tonight. It it could not be more critical. And and one thing that I was thinking back to, you know, I've covered four presidents now inside the chamber at the State of the Union. And one theme that has emerged is we are seeing more and more divisive nights. We're seeing divisive incidents. We're seeing reflections of our divisions, whether it's, you know, Nancy Pelosi tore up that Donald Trump uh, speech. You know, Democrats praised her for it. Republicans were offended. Uh, You heard Joe Wilson yell, you lie at President Obama. There have now been boos in the chamber when that was usually pretty not how you conducted yourself on a night like this. 
I think that this is going to be a chance for every member of Congress who's in that chamber to send a message to Vladimir Putin, because the idea that he is not going to be watching and seeing what our Congress does tonight, I think, is uh, naive. And let me welcome uh, Jonah Goldberg, a brand new CNN new political commentator. It's so great to have you here. Thank it's you great so to be much. Here. Um, Biden has obviously needed to revise his remarks uh, since Russia invaded. Yeah. Um, he's facing a country uh, that's on edge in a lot of ways, not just fears about nuclear war, but... Uh, but also fears uh, of inflation and an economy uh, not recovering the way people want to, COVID, et cetera. What are you expecting from him tonight? Um, first of all, I just want to say Casey's point about the chaos of the State of the Union is a great argument, uh, a great support for my argument that we should go back to State of the Union addresses being handwritten. <laughs> just mailed in. And, I wouldn't and, complain about that And never do these <laughs> spectacles ever again. Uh, look, I, I think this is actually a much tougher State of the Union address for him than a lot of people think. Um, in part because there are an enormous number of things out of his control. Just, and this is not a criticism. They just simply are. You know, inflation is very hard to put back in the tube. Uh, Putin is obviously a guy who is not sort of uh, easy to persuade to do the right thing. And one of the reasons why Biden is in trouble in the polls is that starting with the, with the precipitous withdrawal from Afghanistan that was poorly managed, he seems to a lot of voters like he is not up to events. And having a split screen with the siege of Kiev is not great for him. Not being able to explain why uh, you know, inflation is out of control in a way and how he's going to fix it because he can't open up domestic production. It's a very tough haul for him. And when it's fine for him to do all the unity stuff. But then when he switches to domestic politics, if he yeah. starts getting really partisan, it's going to erase a lot of the goodwill he generates in the first part. And Ashley, one of the things, uh, one of the problems Biden has is he's not getting credit for the things that even the public likes. Uh, that's just a fact. If you look at this new CNN poll, only 42 percent of the country trusts Biden's decision making on Ukraine, though the vast majority approves of sanctions. And Biden, I think it's just empirically factual that he has led the way, even at, when he has allowed Europe to, to act as though they're leading the way on that. The vast majority of the American people don't want boots on the ground. He's said that he's not going to have boots on the ground. So he's not even getting credit for the things that he's handling okay. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the one thing you don't want to do in the State of the Union is a laundry list of all the different issues so that people feel like they have a check mark. What I think President Biden needs to do tonight is tell the story of the last year, what he's done for the American people with the American Rescue Plan, how people's lives have changed. I'm sure there'll be people in the First Lady's box that he'll be able to give a nod to that have been impacted by his domestic policies. But I also think he can weave a thread around the threat in de to democracy globally and how fragile our democracy is right now, calling for voting rights. I mean, we haven't gotten it done. I do think that will you know, charge up some partisan nature, mm -hmm. but I also think it will hit the base and people will say, He's fighting for things that I care about, also while being a global leader, which I think he has done, and he needs to tell that story tonight. But there's a risk in that as well, isn't mm. there? I mean, you, you know, it, it's tough to thread the needle when it comes to comparing what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine to an election booth demanding that you show a photo ID. I mean, most Americans are going to be like, that's not really even remotely the same thing. They face a balancing act on multiple fronts here. I mean, both managing the crisis that's happening, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and balancing the worries um, amongst the public, but also balancing what you were just saying, what they've already done this year, 
while also acknowledging the very real anxieties that are reflected in the poor poll numbers, uh, approval ratings for Biden. Yes, his uh, allies of the White House have been pressing them to not just talk about the Build Back Better agenda, not just talk about sprawling legislation, but also to talk about inflation, to acknowledge high gas prices and really try to relate to the anxieties of the public. And and Jonah, CNN poll of polls, it's an average of the five most uh, credible polls, most recent polls show Biden. He has a 41 percent approval rating. Uh, only Trump had a lower approval rating at his uh, at this point, uh, bef- right before his first State of the Union address. Is there anything you think uh, that can change that? I mean, he, he does have an argument to make about the economy, but the inflation headwinds are, are really ruining it. Yeah, look, I, I think there's a wide open lane for Joe. Look, my grand theory of both parties is the best explanatory, explanatory theory of what they do is that both parties are determined to be minority parties. And that's why both do so many dumb things. And I personally think Biden could announce it would get grief from the the far left of the party. But that's fine. That helps him with moderates and say, look, I care about climate change, but we need to lower the price of gasoline in this country. This war is going to raise the price of gasoline. We need to use it as a weapon to crush the Russian economy and force Putin out of Ukraine and also help Americans here at home. So we're going to ramp up production as best we can and then he can have some sort of, and we'll take the, some of the proceeds and spend it on green initiatives, and that's fine. He should call for a major arms buildup. We've been shrinking the share of GDP on defense for decades. All of these things would be appealing to the middle. They would also be helpful to the most vulnerable Democrats in Congress. Mm-hmm. Instead, he has a tendency to say things that the safest Democrats in Congress want to hear, and that doesn't help him with the middle. And some of those safest Democrats, uh, Rashida Tlaib, for example, in Michigan, is, she's giving a, a, the Workers' Party uh, response to State of the Union address. It. There are three Democrats. I think we're up to three. Three Democrats who are involved Responding in some way or another. Of Responding to their own party. Respond, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, all jo- I, I hear what Joan is saying. And that certainly would help uh, the Josh Gottheimers of the world and the Abigail Spanbergers and the Arlene Lurias. But then you'd have like seven more Democrats giving State of the Union responses. I mean, look, under normal political circumstances, this is a classic Democratic move. And I think there might be some eye rolls and some annoyances, but nobody would really look at it so sideways. I think the war in Ukraine has really cast it in a different light. I think that the opportunity and the challenge here for Joe Biden, this is a campaign. And, you know, if you talk to them in their honest moments, they will tell you they are concerned about President Biden looking weak Mm. with voters. Republicans obviously seize on that all the time. This is a moment where Americans are looking at what's happening overseas. They're remembering what it was like if they're old enough to live during the Cold War and remember what these nuclear threats were like. And they're, I think, open and willing to looking for some strong leadership and getting behind it. That's an opportunity for Joe Biden to move some of these terrible poll numbers uh, but I think the risk is that he doesn't actually live up to that. And he, he doesn't show himself uh, to be able to go beyond uh, to, to do what his campaign has long known that he needs to do. He is better in a one-on-one casual conversation than he is in reading a speech. I think that's a fair thing to I say. I think I've seen Me that, too, too <laughs> on the trail. Yes. And so am I. Right. As are we all. As are we all. My thanks to the panel. And be sure to join CNN tonight for President Biden's first State of the Union address. I'm going to be anchoring along with Anderson Cooper. He's in Ukraine. Live coverage starts at 8 p.m. Eastern on CNN. Coming up, ready and raring to go. Texas voters heading to the polls to settle some serious political fights. Let the midterm elections begin. 
In our politics lead, the 2022 midterm season kicks off today with the Texas primary and the fight to the top that everyone's watching. Republican incumbent Governor Greg Abbott trying to hold on to his seat. He has Donald Trump's endorsement, but some close Trump allies are backing Abbott's GOP challengers. On the Democratic side, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke is the frontrunner for that party's gubernatorial nomination in his third high-profile race following failed presidential and Senate bids in recent years. Synod's Ed Lavendera is just outside, outside Dallas for us. And Ed, this is the first election in Texas since the more restrictive voting laws went into effect. How might that impact tonight's results? Well, we are already seeing a number of headaches across the state in the weeks leading up to the election during the early voting period. And a lot of it stems from confusion over identification requirements for mail-in ballots. If you look at uh, some of the prominent, uh, several prominent counties here in Texas, in Harris County, we are told that about 30% of mail-in ballots uh, have been deemed and flagged as faulty because of ID requirements on those ballots. In Travis County, where Austin is, it's about 12%. We are here in McKinney, Texas, in Collin County, and we were just told by election officials here that there's questions with about 14% of these mail-in ballots, and these are the votes of thousands and thousands of people across the state. And to give you some perspective, during the 2020 election, about 1% of mail-in ballots were deemed as faulty. The League of Women Voters of Texas president described the voting situation here in Texas right now, Jake, as a nightmare. And Ed, uh, in order to win a primary race in Texas, candidates have to get a clear majority of the vote, 50% plus one vote. That is an underlying factor in another hot race today, the Republican primary for attorney general. Right. So as you mentioned, Greg Abbott off the top, he's facing two other challenges who are primarying him from the right. Um, By and large, most people think that he should be able to escape without a runoff. But really, a lot of eyes on the attorney general race here. Ken Paxton, uh, who has been a darling of former President uh, Donald Trump, endorsed by him. He's facing a number of challengers, including a Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman, Louis Gohmert, the East Texas uh, U.S. Uh, congressman from the Tyler area, as, and also George P. Bush, the son of former Florida Governor Jeb Bush and the, and the uh, nephew of President George W. Bush. All of those candidates challenging Ken Paxton, who has been mired in controversy for several years here, uh, and he's facing those challengers. And the question is whether or not he will be able to escape this election tonight without having to be forced into a runoff. We'll see how those returns come back later tonight. Jake. All right, Ed Lavendera in McKinney, Texas, thank you so much. Get the Band-Aids and and lollipops ready. New CDC studies on vaccines for the youngest kids are showing some surprising results. What do parents need to know? That's next. In our Healthly Today, new evidence that COVID variants are starting to outsmart some vaccines. A CDC study out today shows that fully vaccinated kids ages 5 to 11 were about half as likely to need an emergency trip to the hospital because of COVID than unvaccinated kids. And as CNN's Alexandra Field reports, at least one expert finds that number, quote, a little bit disheartening. Not quite what parents hoped for. A new study finds that fully vaccinated children between the ages of 5 and 11 who got COVID-19 were just 46% less likely to go to the emergency room or urgent care with a related condition as compared to unvaccinated children. Older children appear to have significantly more protection for up to five months after their second doses, raising the possibility that for young children we could soon see a third dose. As the push continues to get more children there 
their first shots. The results described as a little bit disheartening by the author of the study. Overall, new COVID cases among children continue their decline, following the trend nationwide. But the American Academy of Pediatrics says about 100,000 children are still getting infected every week. That as masks come off in more schools. Delaware is lifting its school mask requirement today. California says masks in schools can come off next week. But the San Francisco Unified School District won't make the leap just yet. The divide over how and how quickly to move forward is playing out beyond the classroom. I should not have to cover my face, wear a face diaper to get on an airplane. The streets of New Orleans are filled with crowds able to celebrate Mardi Gras together for the first time in two years. New surveys show a lot of Americans are still concerned, either about lifting restrictions or keeping them in place. The divide falling predictably along political lines. A Kaiser Family Foundation survey showing 65% of Republicans saying the so-called return to normal is already safe now. Just 11% of Democrats in that study said the same. While an Axios Ipsos poll finds more than half of Democrats say they still see a return to normal as risky. Despite that, neither Democrats nor Republicans see COVID-19 as a top priority issue for the 2022 elections, according to the Kaiser survey. New COVID cases are the lowest they have been since July, but a more contagious subvariant of Omicron now makes up about 8% of those cases nationwide. And every week, those cases are actually doubling for about the last five weeks, according to the CDC, Jake. Alexander Field, thanks so much. Coming up next, CNN's interview with the president of Ukraine, conducted in a bunker in Kyiv. Stick around. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. It's midnight in Ukraine after a brutal day of Russian attacks on not just the Ukrainian military, but on Ukrainian civilians in major cities such as Kharkiv. Officials say more than 10 people died in Russian airstrikes there today, in addition to the nine civilians killed Monday, including three children. The Russian strikes also shattered windows, incinerated cars, and destroyed a large government building in Kharkiv's main Freedom Square. In the capital of Ukraine, Kyiv, more explosions tonight after Russian rockets hit a massive television tower and the surrounding area, killing at least five people and wounding five others, according to the Ukrainian government. An official also says the strikes damaged the Babin Yar Holocaust Memorial site nearby, which honors the 200,000 people massacred by the Nazis in World War II, 150,000 of of them Jews. A senior Pentagon official says the massive 40-mile-long Russian military convoy appears to have, as of now, stalled on the outskirts of Kyiv. It's a possible sign that the Russians are running out of food and fuel. U.S. intelligence officials fear that Russia could use those vehicles to encircle the capital and cut it off entirely. Nearly 680,000 people and counting have now fled Ukraine, nearly two-thirds of them crossing into Poland. People are now waiting in line for days to leave the country. As CNN's Sarah Seidner now reports for us, once they finally get out of Ukraine, many have no idea what to do or where to go next. A 15-year-old's desperate tears. She says she has just walked across the border to meet her mother, but her mother has just fainted. She has no pulse. She is not breathing. Volunteer medics from Israel rush in. They get her breathing, but she remains unconscious. She needs a hospital. It takes 30 minutes. 
for an ambulance to arrive. She come back? I'm going. You saved her life. This is life on the Polish side of the border with Ukraine. It's only women and children. They come along after three days in the cold. In Poland, hope and heartbreak are everywhere as refugees pack into the country. Olga fled the country with her nine-year-old daughter, Angelina. Olga had to leave her husband behind so he could fight with whatever he could find. It's so difficult. I, I cannot tell you how it's difficult, this feeling. The feeling that you lose your life, you know. And here, I don't know what to do. She is still shell-shocked but at least has friends to take her in. As night falls in the bitter cold, more heartbreak. But the Polish people are offering refugees a warm welcome, warm clothes, a warm place to stay, a warm meal, even diapers and toys for children. A grassroots effort smack in the middle of a supermarket parking lot just a few kilometers from the border. My father is actually like helping the city to like hold the ground and I'm trying to help as much as I can. All right, Sarah Seidner uh, reporting from the Polish side of the border. Sarah, um, you have been talking not only to Ukrainians, but also to residents of Ukraine trying to get out, students and families from, from all over the world recent, really. Uh, Sarah? Uh, Sarah's uh, frozen. Yeah, I mean, what we are... Oh, go ahead, Sarah. I'm uh, sorry. Are we frozen? Can you see me now? Uh, ah, okay. No worries. This is this happens, right? We're we're near the border, so there there are a lot of technical issues. But um, yes, we have spoken to a lot of people. We have seen, you know, hundreds of Ukrainians uh, coming across, people who were born and, and raised there. We've also seen a lot of people from places like Cameroon, uh, people from Nigeria, people from India, people from Afghanistan, people from Nepal. Uh, and what we are hearing from uh, the Africans and, and sometimes the Afghans is that um, when, they, when they try to board the plane, uh, train excuse me, in Ukraine, there is a free train that people are being allowed on to get them out of danger. When they do that, uh, they are being, in their words, discriminated against. They are being pushed off. They are being told to wait. They are being told that they're not wanted. Even women and children. Um, and so they're waiting longer, uh, for example, than their counterparts. And they said, look, this is the, really the first time that they've really felt the sting of what they feel is discrimination. The first time because many of them have said, look, we were treated very well before this. But as soon as war came along, uh, things felt very different suddenly. And they are also the ones who we're seeing in the cold uh, and without a place to live. That being said, We've also heard from them and from many of the people of Ukraine who have left, tried to figure out what to do, that Poland has opened its doors to them and that they are so grateful to be able to be here. And I just want to give you one quick look, Jake, at what is happening here. It is remarkable, really. Hundreds of people, thousands of people coming across the border. These people are literally just volunteers. This is not a government effort here, but this entire area, this entire entire area is filled with hundreds of volunteers who are doing this completely because they want the Ukrainian people to feel welcome. Food, hot food, clothes, anything you could imagine, baby diapers, everything is here just to make Ukrainians feel comfortable. Jake? All right, Sarah Seiner reporting live in Pishamishal, Poland. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. More explosions rocking Ukraine's capital of Kyiv this evening. Let's go to CNN's Matthew Chance live in that capital city. Matthew, what more do you know about the explosions that just happened about an hour or so ago? 
Yeah, about an hour ago, very loud indeed. Three explosions, really sending sort of shock waves across the city. Really, really quite, quite enormous things. We don't know what, what it was exactly, but it was to the north, northeast of, of the city. Um, we had another strike inside you know, the northern part of the city as well, which struck a television tower. It also hit a, you know, a, a, the Babinyar sort of Holocaust memorial area as well. Uh, five people uh, were killed in, in that strike. And it, it's all part, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a particular amount of expectation at the, at the moment as well, anticipation, because you know, we, we all know about this huge column of Russian armour that is making its way towards the north northwest part of part of the city, um, and you know what the plan is for that massive military force is you know still very uncertain. But there's a concern that it's going to attempt to surround the city or encircle it, and then launch potentially a heavy bombardment of it. Now, you know, we don't know when that's going to happen. We, we don't know what progress they've made uh, over the course of the past. You know, 12 hours or so. What we do know is that you know, Russian media has been reporting there may be more talks tomorrow between Russia and Ukraine about trying to find a diplomatic solution to this to this conflict, to this crisis. I've spoken to senior Ukrainian officials tonight and they've said that's a possibility. Um, and clearly the Russians with these ta- attacks that they're carrying out are trying to you know, improve their negotiating position, I think is what they what they said. Um, you know, but yeah, very tense, very tense uh, evening today in Kiev. Uh, one of many that we've been experiencing. Every night is very tense because we don't know what to expect. We don't know at what point the Russians are going to really ratchet up the military pressure and make a concerted effort to to take, to seize, or to bombard the Ukrainian capital. Jake. Matthew Chance, thank you so much. And, and coming up, we're going to have your interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, right after this, uh, so stick around. Um, we'll be right back. And we're back now with our breaking news. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky talked to CNN today. He did it from a bunker in Kiev. He talked about his country's determination to fight off the Russian invaders. And he talked about his message to Americans and to President Biden. Let's bring back CNN's Matthew Chance in Kiev who did this interview, who conducted it. Matthew, tell us about your conversation uh, with President Zelensky. Yeah, well, first of all, we were taken to a secret location inside uh, central Kiev, near the presidential compound. Uh, we were escorted by you know, heavily armed military forces into a, an, an underground underground bunker when President Zelensky finally arrived wearing green sort of military fatigues. You know, I started, talked about all those things, but I started off by asking him, what his message was for, for President Biden, the head of the State of the Union address, later on tonight. What message? So many messages. I think that he has to give those messages what will really work. That is very important to be, to be very, you know, useful in this situation, in this war against Russia. 
Я думаю, перш за все, що I think first of all he's a world leader. And it's very important for people in the United States to understand that despite the fact that the war is taking place in Ukraine, it's essentially for values in life, for democracy, for freedom. Therefore this war is for all the world. And that message should be sent far and wide from Ukraine to people in the United States so they understand what it is like for us here, what we're fighting for and why support for Ukraine matters. For a long time you downplayed the US intelligence assessments about there being an imminent Russian attack. Do you now regret that? And do you think the fact that you didn't act earlier has left the people of Ukraine unprepared? The response you see today, how we work, how our army works and defends us, is a testament that we're ready for anything. Even though we were preparing in advance, it's important not to let your enemy anticipate your reaction. That's why I really did not like that situation where we put everything at risk and tell the world that we're preparing for war. The United States has said that it will not enforce a no-fly zone over this country and it won't put boots on the ground. But do you think it is now time for President Biden and other Western countries to reconsider that and to help you, not just with military aid, but with, but with manpower? I've already turned to some foreign leaders with this request. I believe that leaders must support democratic states of the world who are keen to defend such principles. The powerful issue of closing the airspace helps us tremendously. This does not mean dragging NATO into this war. We spoke many times with President Biden, and I'm thankful for him for these opportunities and support, but they also did not hear me. I've been telling them that Ukraine will fight hardest of all. You will see, but us alone against Russia, we would not be able to do it. Your army has enjoyed some significant battlefield victories in the past week. I myself have been to see some of the Russian armoured columns that have been totally hammered and destroyed by the weapons and the men that you've got fighting the Russian advance. Are you now concerned, though, that the Kremlin will double down on its military operations and hit Ukraine even harder? Firstly, why are we winning or why are we defending ourselves? Because this is our home. Yes, Russia will double up, but take a look at them. Why our men are stronger, more powerful and successful? Because, as I said, we have what we need to protect. And they do not even understand our state. They do not know these streets. They do not know our people, do not understand our philosophy, our aspirations, what type of people we are. They don't know anything here. They were just sent here to fight and to die. You sent your delegation to meet the Russians for talks. Did anything substantial come out of that? Is there any hope as the world watches for diplomacy? They decided, they decided uh, to begin to speak about this situation. And I wanted, I, I really wanted, and I asked them, so you have to speak, first of all, you, everybody has to stop, stop fighting, and to go to that point from w- where it, it was beginning. Yeah. Yes, it began five, six, today six, six days ago. Yes. I think th- there are principal things you can do it, and that is very important moment. If you'll do this, and if those side is ready, it means that they are ready for the peace. If they don't ready, it means that you're just, you know, just 
Wasting time. And do you think you're wasting your time or do you think they're ready? We'll see. Well, Jake, we will see indeed because it's been reported from Russia that there are more talks scheduled for tomorrow um, between Ukraine and Russia to see if there's a diplomatic uh, solution that can be found to this. Ukrainian officials that I've spoken to, though, say the bombing campaign is so intense uh, that everything might change. Matthew, it's tough to envision any sort of diplomatic off-ramp for Putin. He has decided to go in and invade a country and kill civilians uh, unprovoked just because he thinks that country should be part of Russia. Uh, Does President Zelensky see any diplomatic off-ramp at all? Um, At at this stage, no. I mean, he was he he played down the possibility there was going to be a diplomatic outcome, Uh, not even the possibility of a ceasefire, he said, until until he saw that, until he stopped the actual fighting, uh, he saw the actual fighting stopping. As you said, he he, he didn't think that the other side, the Russians, uh, were serious about this. I mean, look, I mean, the, the Russians may be playing for time. They may be engaging in these negotiations so that they can rethink their plan, rethink their, their tactics, which, which clearly aren't going uh, very well, and perhaps gather, gather more forces. On the other hand, you know, Vladimir Putin and, and the Russians, they, they have been blooded. I mean, there have been significant amounts of Russian forces that have been destroyed in their attempt to, uh, to, to take this country and to take its population uh, centres. And so... You know, I, I don't want us to rule out. We all should. We should hope that there is still a possibility that there will be some kind of climb down. But I mean, the truth is, the record when it comes to the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin, um, it doesn't give you much room for optimism. And President Zelensky, uh, I, I don't mean this in a critical way, but but he, he was unshaven. He looked exhausted. Did, did you get any sense of how he's he's holding up, um, not just physically but mentally? Yeah, I mean, he, well, look, I mean, he's obviously under a massive amount of pressure. Right. I mean, this is a this is a hunted man. He believe he believes he's hunted. Yeah, he believes he's the number one target of the Russians, and that his family are the number two target. That's what he says. But yeah, I mean, he's and he's hiding from you know, moving from bunker to bunker. Yeah, this was just one of the locations where we met him that, that he, he spends time. Um, and yes, he was wearing military fatigues. Uh, he was unshaven. He looked very pale. He had red eyes. He spoke very emotionally about his family. He was asked, you know, at one point, you know, when was the last time you saw your family? And he said, I haven't seen them since, since before this war. And then he corrected himself and said, actually, it was three days ago. So and he wasn't happy about that. You know, he's... Um, yeah, you know, under an enormous amount of pressure, he's been thrust into this role. Remember, you know, it wasn't long ago that he was an actor on television playing the president in a very popular sort of comedy on Ukrainian television. He then actually became the president. And now he is this kind of you know, figure of you know, this almost iconic figure of the Ukrainian uh, resistance to Russian pressure, which is an, an enormously pressurized you know, uh, role to play. Matthew Jansen, Kiev, thank you so much for that interview. Please be safe. Coming up, decoding Vladimir Putin. Our next guest is the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. He's been briefed about Russia and Ukraine. We're going to talk to him. Stay with us. In our world lead, sources tell CNN that the U.S. Intelligence Committee is focused on getting to the bottom of Vladimir Putin's state of mind. Longtime Moscow watchers have publicly speculated about the Russian president's mental and emotional health, noting that the former KGB officer 
has gone from careful and calculated to erratic and irrational. Let's get right to CNN's Katie Bo Lillis. And Katie, obviously Putin has long been a murderous thug, but the question of what motivates him in terms of strategy is something the U.S. intelligence community has spent decades trying to figure out and decode. What exactly are they looking for now? Yeah, Jake. So ever since Putin gave this sort of uncharacteristically emotional speech last week, full of, you know, kind of crazy revisionist history, really laying out his laying out his justification for invading Ukraine. Sources tell us that U.S. officials have been really pressing the intelligence community for any new insights that they can come up with that might help explain Putin's state of mind right now. So they're looking for things like how is Putin reacting to this sort of unified and and sort of massive uh, pressure campaign from the West? How is he responding to the stress of a military campaign that by all accounts hasn't really gone exactly as planned. And, and maybe most intriguingly, has there been has there been an impact uh, to Putin's mind, mindset from what longtime Kremlin watchers say has been this kind of protracted period of isolation during the course of the COVID-19 pandemic? And one piece of information that we do know that officials are looking at is this piece of raw intelligence that the FBI has obtained. Uh, this, this report, which our colleague Zach Cohen um, managed to get a hold of and take a look at, uh, has detailed what a FBI source has told the Bureau about what he has learned from a source of his own, presumably in Russia, although it is not clear based on the document that we reviewed. Um, And and what this source is telling the FBI, and and I want to quote this directly, is that over the last couple of days, Putin's behavior has been highly concerning and unpredictable, and that he has expressed extreme anger over Western sanctions. Now, of course, this is raw intelligence, not vetted, not verified, not analyzed, but it gives you a sense of how seriously U.S. officials are taking this question right now, because we do know from our sources that the FBI is under a little bit of pressure here to kind of try to go back to this source, see if there's anything else that they can learn. All right, Katie Bolillas, thank you so much. Uh, Really appreciate it. Uh, Let's discuss this with Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. He's the ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee. So, Congressman, uh, you've been briefed by U.S. intelligence officials. Uh, Obviously, you're only going to share with us what you're allowed to share. But what are you hearing about Putin's mental and emotional state? Well, certainly it's of of great concern because, um, you know, it affects how everyone tries to evaluate what is occurring. But I think in this instance... Uh, you know, adversaries self-select, and Putin has identified himself as an adversary to the West, adversary to the United States. And as you said, a murderous thug. We're seeing that as he's killing civilians, women and children uh, in uh, uh, Ukraine. What, what I think, though, is that, you know, he is absolutely stating that he wants to reconstitute the geographical area of the Soviet Union. We need to believe him. And so in that, we need to understand that all of the things that we're looking to try to deter him, to try to to arm uh, NATO allies, to arm the Ukrainians, has to be with the context of this is going to be a much broader war. Uh, Putin, it needs to be stopped or he's just going to continue. What do you tell Americans who are watching right now and are concerned? Uh, We're seeing this individual described as erratic, isolated, unpredictable. And knowing that he has access to the second biggest stockpile in the world of nuclear weapons, and he's put them on high alert. What, what do you say to your constituents? Well, he didn't really put them on high alert. He said he put, he put them on a, an alert status. It was kind of undefined, really, as to what that was. Certainly, we're watching from the intelligence side what movements, what's happening with respect to them. We also have a nuclear deterrent. But I, I think the big focus has to be not on the statements that he's making that are, are you know, bravada and trying to, to puff himself up, are how do we make certain that our allies are safe? How do we 
uh, support the Ukrainian people. We need to get weapons in there. We need to assist them. President Zelensky is absolutely right. This is a fight about democracy. This is about the future. This is about the future of the West and Europe and the United States. And we need to make certain that we rise to this occasion. Uh, a fellow Republican who's on the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee, Senator Ben, ben Sass of Nebraska, was on the show earlier. He says that um, White House lawyers, I imagine National Security Council lawyers, are slowing down the process of sharing with the Ukrainians uh, real-time actionable intelligence um, is that accurate? And if so, what should be done about it? So members of Congress are receiving a lot of different communications from people on the ground in Ukraine, and they're hearing the same thing as, as have I. I. I think we need to make certain that we give them actionable intelligence immediately. We need to get weapons in there. I mean, this administration should have got weapons in there last year. It should have been built up so that, you know, when uh, Russia began this, this war, Ukraine had the ability to defend themselves even more strongly than they have. But as you've seen, the, the miles and miles of weapons that... Uh, Putin intends to move into Ukraine to kill civilians, women and children. We need to make certain that we give them weapons to respond and defend themselves. What do you think about people who are calling for a, a no-fly zone, which obviously would require uh, either NATO pilots or U.S. pilots, uh, Air Force or Navy, uh, to risk their lives, come in contact with uh, Russian fighter jets? I mean, is that something that you're willing to do? Right. I don't think there's anyone who wants to escalate this to a point where there are U.S. and Russia troops that are fighting against each other. But I do think certainly that the Ukrainians have shown both the will and the ability to fight for themselves, and we need to give them the weapons to do so. What weapons specifically? Uh, well, have you seen, right, missiles? certainly, um, you know, surface-to-air um, uh, missiles. As even, you know, President Zelensky said, give me ammunition. Um, they're going to run out of ammunition. We need to get both weapons, ammunition, missiles, um, stingers, all of this needs to be at their disposal so they can defend their country and, as they say, defend democracy. Do you think there's actually any sort of off-ramp for Putin, or is he just going to do this ultimately until Ukraine falls, uh, killing who, who knows how many innocent Ukrainians while doing it, uh, and then installs a puppet government after either capturing or killing Zelensky? Yeah, I don't think there's an off-ramp for him. I think a, there's a retreat. As we've seen so far, he has an invasion force. He doesn't really have a, a occupying force. And as we've seen in the, the will of the Ukrainians, they're going to continue to fight. Once these people get out of their armored vehicles and tanks, they're going to be met by Ukrainians who have weapons and hopefully ammunition that uh, Europe and the United States are going to help them to, to uh uh, to have it at their disposal, and they can continue to defend their country even if uh, they have lost ground. That's the point at which um, Putin's really going to have a very difficult time because he's not going to be able to hold Ukraine even if he takes territory. So ultimately, you, you see this ending for Putin the way that it ended for the Soviets in Afghanistan. It just 10 years of a bloody, low-grade uh, insurrection, uh, re rebellion, and, and ultimately they just it decide it's not worth it? He and the Russian people are going to have a very difficult decision to make uh, because this is, is not going to be over. This is not, I mean, the, you saw President Zelensky saying, you know, these are our homes. We're going to fight for this country. I believe them. I also believe that uh, Putin wants to expand this war even outside Ukraine, but he can't do that until he gets finished with Ukraine. I don't think Ukraine's going to let him be finished. You're going to be going to President Biden's uh, first State of the Union this evening. Is there anything in particular you're hoping to hear from him? Right. I've been talking to Democrats and Republicans, and I can tell you that there's bipartisan agreement that the president needs to talk about increasing domestic energy production, ending uh, Russia exports of oil coming to the United States, arming the Ukrainians and making certain that we arm our NATO allies so that we can have a forward uh, position uh, to assist against any advance by Putin.
All right, Congressman Mike Turner, the ranking Republican on the House Intelligence Committee. Always good to see you. Thank you, good Thank you so much, sir. Yeah. President Biden just hours away from his first State of the Union address. Cena just got a look at some of his speech. We're going to talk to a member of the president's cabinet next. Stay with us. Breaking news in our politics lead just moments ago. The White House released an excerpt from President Biden's pending State of the Union address. That speech, of course, is set for tonight as the nation and the world face crises on multiple fronts. CNN's Phil Mattingly is live for us at the White House. Phil, we now have a better idea of what Biden is going to say about Russia, you say. Yeah, and it underscores a key point officials have made about the message the president wants to get across when it comes to this geopolitical crisis that is rattling the world right now, and that is the stakes for the American public. There's a recognition when you look at markets, when you look at prices, that this will have an an impact on the American public. So why is it important for America to be so involved? That's a message the president wants to get out, and in these excerpts, he underscores that message, giving the history of NATO, the history of kind of the pillars of Western democracy over the course of the last eight decades, and saying this. Putin's war was premeditated and unprovoked. He rejected efforts at diplomacy. He thought the West and NATO wouldn't respond, and he thought he could divide us here at home. Putin was wrong. We were ready. And I think that will also be a key element, the ability to put together the coalition that we've seen unleash unprecedented sanctions over the course of the last couple of days, along with military assistance, along with other aid for Ukraine, underscoring that the U.S. has led in the uh, lead up to this moment in time and also that it's gotten results even though, obviously, Russia is still advancing right now, Jake. Obviously, Phil, a lot of Americans uh, are going to be watching to see and hear what President Biden is planning on doing when it comes to inflation. Uh, Anything there? Yeah, prices at a four-decade high, and the administration is very cognizant of the real-world impact that has on everyday Americans. When you talk to officials who are involved of the key themes the president was thinking through when he started uh, getting his head around the State of the Union back in December, this was always going to be a core component, and it still is. The president making clear in the excerpts of the remarks that we've gotten that he does believe he has plans. There are uh, successes from his first year that he can build on and lay the pathway to progress, particularly in terms of increasing the capacity of the economy, underscoring that he wants to push Congress to pass key elements of his Build Back Better plan. Not the entire plan, probably won't mention it by name at all, but key elements of that plan and also a focus on supply chains. Obviously, we've seen the administration talk about this repeatedly over the course of the last uh, several months, Jake, not just in the near term, but also in the long term, trying to address supply chains, supply chain bottlenecks, what they can do now to try and address some of those bottlenecks, but also over the long term to ensure that America doesn't have another supply chain crisis like they've had in the wake of the pandemic, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Secretary Buttigieg, we're hearing that President Biden intends to address the economic burden at home caused in part by sanctions on Russia. Right now, gas prices, of course, at a national average of $3.62 a gallon, up by $0.09 just a week ago, up $0.24 just a month ago. How is President Biden going to convince Americans that these rising prices are, are going to be worth it when to many of them, the war in Ukraine seems thousands of miles, might as well be planets away? Well, uh, the president is somebody who very much thinks and acts in terms of the kitchen table. It's uh, how he got started and how he approaches the the presidency every day. And so you're going to hear a lot about those issues. You're also going to hear about America's moral commitment to stand with the Ukrainian people and to make sure that Putin's Russia faces severe consequences for uh, launching this unprovoked attack. Uh, But when it comes to the prices and and the impact that people are feeling here at home, you know, the president has taken 
taken several steps to make sure that uh, not only we're doing everything we can to keep gas prices under control, but more broadly, uh, challenging Congress to make sure that we're lowering costs across the board. Now, remember, the president has put forward ways to lower the cost of insulin, lower the cost of childcare, lower the cost of housing, lower the cost of transportation, uh, all steps that would make a difference on the bottom line of so many American budgets, uh, no matter what's happening with the ups and downs of global oil markets. Uh, and I think you're going to hear about that continued vision today, in addition, of course, to reminding America about all the progress America has made over this past year. So uh, West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin spoke to a West Virginia radio show today. He said he wanted President Biden to ban all Russian products uh, from coming into the country, including uh, Russian oil. Take a listen. We've been purchasing about 500,000 and last year went up to about 670,000 barrels a day. And that's just entirely unacceptable now when we're asking the whole world to unite around and help Ukraine every way possible and put as much pressure as we can on Russia. It only makes sense that we lead by an example of showing that we're shutting down all Russian products coming into the United States. I know you're Transportation Secretary, not uh, Energy Secretary, but it's in your wheelhouse. What's your uh, reaction to that? Well, look, uh, the president and the administration have taken a number of steps that are imposing severe pressure on Russia right now in terms of the sanctions that have taken place, uh, steps uh, related to many sectors of the economy. Uh, There are more actions available to the president, and I'm sure they will continue to be considered uh, based on the reality on the ground and the actions that we see. Uh, I'm not, you know, I can't get ahead of of, uh, the president on that, but uh, obviously this is a moment where uh, so many uh, actors and players around the world are standing together on the measures that we can take and also being smart about it, uh, taking steps that will impact Russia and Putin most of all. So just in terms of uh, elucidating and educating our viewers, uh, the the, uh, banning Russian uh, fuel and oil imports is an obvious reason to do that, that we can see it will weaken Russia, uh, it will be a moral position. What's the counter argument? I know you're not taking a position here, you're not getting ahead of the president, but what is the counterargument? It will drive up fuel prices in the United States? Look, any step that, that you take, and this is true of a number of the uh, action items on the president's menu of options, uh, can have effects here on Americans as well. They can have, an effects, uh, have effects on our allies and partners in Europe and other parts of the world. Everything is connected, and uh, obviously you want to make sure that any step that we take is one where the impact on Russia and Russia's behavior uh, outweighs any negative impact that could uh, affect the American people or any of our allies and partners. Uh, none of these... Uh, decisions are simple ones, uh, but that's the nature of the decisions that come before the president, and the president has already led a number of steps to put that extreme pressure on Russia, and it's clearly being felt in Russia in ways that uh, perhaps they hadn't prepared for when they launched this unprovoked military aggression. So I I was thinking about this because um, I saw a statement from President uh, Obama, former President Obama, talking about the need to take a very strong stance uh, in in support of Ukraine and and against uh, Russia. Uh, even if that means some pain at home. And I thought to myself, yeah, I mean, that pain, you know, President Obama's not going to really feel that pain. He's a multi-hundred millionaire. I'm not really going to feel that pain. You probably won't really feel that pain. But there are a lot of Americans out there, you know, for whom uh, $1,000 extra a year in gas prices, that's really painful. Uh, Is there a way to help those people uh, if we're all taking this uh, national sacrifice? 
There may well be, but the other thing I would emphasize is that there are steps right now that the president has put forward that are worth at least $1,000 to millions of American households. And he's challenged Congress to pass those and send them to his desk. So no matter what is happening in any international uh, theater, no matter what is happening uh, in global energy markets, the president's proposals that would, again, right now, lower the cost of insulin, lower the cost of childcare, lower the cost of taking care of an elderly relative, lower the cost of housing, uh, lower a lot of transportation costs that people feel. Uh, those are good policies precisely because there may be other pressures, uh, sudden acute ones like what's happening overseas or ones that have built up over time like the inflation that we've seen uh, that we need to make sure that we're bringing Americans relief from. There's no reason not to do those. We could do them right now. And I think you'll hear a powerful case for some of those steps tonight from the president uh, standing there on the floor of the House. While I have you, the Transportation Security Administration's mask mandate expires in 17 days, March 18th. Given the, given the CDC's recent move to drop these uh, strong mask recommendations for most of the United States, uh, are you planning on renewing or lifting the mandate for masks on trains, planes, and buses? Well, the TSA, I think, is going to continue to follow the science, follow the guidance uh, from CDC. Obviously, the, the recent new information from CDC on Friday has simplified a lot of our lives uh, going into the workplace and, and going about our, our daily routines. Um, transportation can be different, but transportation is another arena where I think a lot of us are, are looking forward to being able to put so many of these pandemic restrictions behind us. As of now, nothing has changed with regard to that guidance, uh, but I know the TSA is going to take a good look at the latest and uh, we're going to be partnering with them in making sure those decisions are well informed. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, uh, enjoy your good seats at the State of the Union this evening. Thanks very much. Be sure to join CNN tonight for President Biden's very first State of the Union address. I'm going to be anchoring along with Anderson Cooper, who's in Ukraine. Live coverage starts at 8 p.m. Eastern on CNN. Coming up, the sound of silence. Former President Trump and his children are trying to block a judge's order that would force them to answer questions under oath. The latest legal wrangling. That's next. In our politics lead, former President Trump, along with Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr., are seeking to block a judge's order that they sit for depositions by next week. New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking their testimony in a civil probe of the Trump Organization's business practices. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now live with more on this. Paula, explain what's going on here. Why are the Trumps filing this appeal? Well, Jake, as we know, the former president and his namesake business, they will use any option at their disposal to delay litigation. But in speaking with a source close to the former president's legal team, I am told that they are preparing for the possibility of these depositions. And one of the biggest issues that they need to tackle is whether any of these folks should take the Fifth Amendment. By invoking their Fifth Amendment, there is a possibility in a civil case in New York that a jury could draw what's called an adverse inference or basically hold it against someone who doesn't answer questions. Now, the president's other son, Eric Trump, invoked his Fifth Amendment multiple times over when he was asked questions in this same civil investigation back in the fall. Now, I am told they will continue to try to delay this as long as they can, but they don't believe that any civil action brought by the attorney general is a bar to former President Trump running for the White House again. What is the state of the separate criminal probe being run by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office? It's a great question, Jake, because, of course, the civil and the criminal probes, they're running parallel, investigating many of the same questions about whether the Trump organization misled lenders and the government about the value of its assets. 
Now, the newly installed district attorney says this investigation will continue even though two of the top prosecutors on the case recently resigned from his office. Now, the investigation has already charged the Trump Organization and one of its top executives, Alan Weisselberg, in a tax fraud scheme. But Jake, this investigation has been going on for years and they have not been able to secure a key cooperating witness or enough evidence to charge the former president or any member of his family. Now, I'm told, again, by a source close to the legal team that they do believe it would be harder to run again with a criminal indictment. But with all the developments, with how long this has been going on, they believe a criminal indictment is a fading possibility. All right, Paula Reed, with all the latest, thank you so much. We have some breaking news for you. In our sports lead, I wish it were better news, but baseball's opening day and several of the season's first games have been canceled after a last-minute push for a new labor deal between Major League Baseball players and owners failed. Last hour, the Players Association rejected the league's final proposed collective bargaining agreement ahead of today's 5 p.m. deadline. Commissioner Rob Manfred says the league is canceling the first two series of games for the regular season. Owners implemented the lockout after failing to come to an agreement with the players late last year. Today's announcement means baseball is losing regular season games due to a work stoppage for the first time since 1995. I will be back with you at 8 p.m. for CNN special coverage of President Biden's State of the Union address. Anderson Cooper will be joining me live from Ukraine. But first, our coverage of the breaking news out of Ukraine continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you in about two hours. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.